Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the letter of the Philippians, along with Dr. Mark A. Jennings, professor of New Testament from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and the author of The Price of Partnership in the Letter of Paul to the Philippians. Dr. Jennings, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be with you. All righty. So let's start with uh, various approaches. How have scholars, uh, Christian thinkers over the years, over the centuries, approached Philippians in terms of assigning a central purpose or many different purposes or no purpose at all? Excellent. It's been interesting. Uh, You know, when I started deciding my dissertation, my first rule was I didn't want to do Romans because of all the scholarship I would have to read on that. So I thought Philippians would be a lot easier, right? Just just four chapters. Um, but one of the things that uh, I noticed was the amount of discussion that went around just what Paul was doing in Philippians. And and largely speaking, for the most part, the, the consensus for centuries has been that um, Paul has a lot of things he wants to talk about in Philippians, and, and he hits a, a bunch of different subjects. And uh, one of the scholars I really like, his name is Gerald Hawthorne. He calls it a conversation among friends, you know, meaning that it weaves in and out without a, without a through line. Um, yeah, there's been a, a couple of people who have looked for sort of major themes that, that might run through it. Um, one of the uh, things I've done with my work actually is uh, argue that there is a central theme. Doesn't mean Paul doesn't have secondary things, but there is a, a through line that goes through. But that's one of the interesting things, I think, about Philippians. It, and even leads to, and I think we'll get into it later, conversations about was it one letter or was it a, a composition of letters that came through? Because it seems like there's a uh, multi, uh, multiplicity of, of topics and themes in, in the letter. So what would you say are the most noteworthy attempts at assigning purpose, um, especially more contemporary? Yeah, so... Um, I mean, probably I would say the, the general theme, the, what you get a lot is on the idea of unity. And, and most will argue, um, uh, you know, Hansen does this, Silver does this. They argue that um, Paul is addressing unity concerns within the Philippian church and in trying to make sure that church uh, stays um, uh, together and cohesive. Um, you know, Fee does some work where, he says Paul's not really interested in the gift, uh, but uses that as the sort of excuse to to give instruction to the letter uh, to the Philippians about how they're supposed to live their lives, sort of in the city. Um, I have a different view of the gift on that, but I think those are probably uh, two of the, the more predominant themes. Now, generally speaking, everyone is in agreement that uh, it's a very joyful letter. It, it's not a, a heavy rebuke uh, like you might feel with Galatians, you know, for example. Um, so there's certainly a consensus that that it's a letter of joy. And how would you describe what you see as the central thrust of Philippians? Sure. Um, I think the um, the heart of Philippians is this church's partnership uh, with Paul in in Paul's mission. Um, that that is the through line. Um, that uh, the Philippian church um, was one of those churches that. Uh, Paul trusted to be a financial support of his, trusted to be in partnership with him, and and that he uh, uh, is celebrating the fact that they're continuing and encouraging them to continue in that partnership. You know, so that's why I think the gift is essential. So the you know, Epaphroditus, 
comes with a gift from the Philippians to Paul while Paul's in prison. And I think that was a moment of great joy for the apostle, because that signaled to him that the Philippians were still with him. They were still supporting him. There had been a pause. Something had happened that had caused them to pause, and I have some thoughts on that, but that was no longer. They had renewed their uh, support. Um, And so I think Philippians is Paul writing to that church to encourage them to persevere uh, to stay the course in their partnership with him and, and with the gospel uh, mission. And, and so there's a, a, a question of unity, if you will, but it's not a, a disunity within the church, but it's an encouragement of unity of the church with Paul uh, in his mission. So I think that's what Philippians runs through, is that call to be partners together in the gospel. All righty. And you have three particular things that matter, um, fellowship, rivals, and money. So you right. see those so three that, throughout? Yes. So that, that, that koinonia matters. Like koinonia, the, 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 the Greek were there for fellowship, which when we think of fellowship, um, you know, we often think of fellowship uh, in a lower sense. By that, I mean, uh, we have a fellowship hall at a church. You know, it's a place where people gather and they have coffee and they, and they, they interact at a social level fellowship uh, in the way that koinonia has has a kind of an elevated sense to it and here's what i mean by that it has the idea of a of really a partnership of an agreement to sort of be partners in a enterprise we often see a koinonia language used in um, economics of the ancient world and, and and business relationships and here i think that same idea is being used um in in the the church's relationship with paul in fact, we find a very interesting language in Galatians on this, uh, which might help us understand where Paul and uh, James and John enter into a right hand of fellowship. If you notice that context where they enter into fellowship has an agreement of, of what apostles are going to be overseeing what area, the Gentiles versus the Jews. So there is so partnership language. So partnership matters. Um, rivals matter. I, I, the, one of the things we, we get this picture that Early Christianity is sort of this single group going out, proclaiming who Jesus is, and everything else is pagan. What we actually have is there are multiple sort of messages, if you will, about uh, Jesus going out. And uh, there are the, the, you know, the Orthodox message, and then there's the heretical message. Obviously, Galatians is a great example of this, but where there are um, a right view of Christ, if you will, and a wrong view of Christ. And there, there's just some almost rival competitions happening alongside going out into a pagan world. And so these rivals idea matter. Um, and I think Paul is really working with the churches to make sure they are aligned with, um, you know, the, the God-ordained uh, mission uh, and gospel and not with a, an erroneous view of the gospel. Uh, and then finances matter that, um, you know, it's not something mundane, if you will, how, you know, God's treasure is given to God's people to use for God's purposes. And that, that has an almost sacramental sense, if you will, like an obedient sense in that. And so for Paul, the receiving of, of money wasn't just, um, okay, good. It was evidence that they, the Philippian church is remaining faithful, um, you know, to the gospel and to the gospel mission. And so it, it increases its view, if you will, um, of something as mundane as money. So in your title, you use the word price, the price of partnership. Um, what are you getting at there? Sure. So that um, the, the, I think the, in the price language, what I'm trying to like, accomplish a couple of things. One is 
you know, use some language that evokes finances, right? And, and, and that, but also that talks about perseverance language. Um, I mean, throughout Philippians, there is evidence of, of different individuals that are, including Christ himself, that are being presented in a, you know, persevering, you know, through hardship for the gospel and the, and, and the price of that's paid, if you will, to um, that's demanded. Maybe that's a better way of thinking of it uh, for um, commitment to God's plan. And so there's that price idea is, is yes, there's financial aspects to it um, that are part of this partnership, part of this fellowship, but also there is um, an acceptance that suffering is going to be part of this, that the, you know, the, the, the way of, of Christ is the way of the cross and persevering uh, in that and seeing God's hand behind that. that so that price language picks up sort of both of those um, ideas. So you had quite a few people responding to your book and offering reviews, published reviews. So that must have been very encouraging. So yeah, it's, it's always one of those moments where you're like, read, buckle up. Right. <laughs> to, to see, right? At least you're in, they're engaging you whether right. they agree That's or right. not. That's right. So what would you um, say is like the, the main thrust of the critiques you received? And then how would you respond to those critiques? Sure. So um, and so I'm, you know, I'm sort of very upfront in the, in the start of my book that this is that I'm, I'm you know, in presenting a single theme. Uh, that threads through Philippians that governs Philippians that I'm doing something different. Um, uh, and it's a generally the reviews have, uh, I think been quite um, encouraging in the sense of, of saying, yes, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm presenting an argument, a cogent argument, you know, something that does seek to accomplish what it's doing. And then it's criticisms are that I'm, I, I see what I'm looking for. Um, which is even in, in, uh, in my in my work in the introductory materials, I acknowledge like there's a, right. always a possibility that when you're arguing that something can be read through a particular lens, that you're going to make everything fit that lens. And and what I've hoped uh, is that the lesser convincing areas, if you will, like if someone's to say, well, that doesn't seem to fit exactly, you know, at first blush uh, un- under that argument makes sense in the more convincing, like there's the heavier presence. And so if, this, if there's a heavier framework or heavier lens that is louder in volume, if you will, that some of the more subtle notes, you know, will, will make sense. But I think that's probably by and large has been the um, uh, m- uh, most predominant criticism. You get some things like, you know, well, it, discussion about how I don't talk about this or I don't talk about that, but I wasn't writing a commentary. You know, I was, so there are pieces that don't get as much heavier treatment because I'm looking at a lens um, but and that's fine. But I think that's probably been generally the um, uh, the, the the criticism that I've received is that there are places where my argument isn't as strong as others. And and I would say probably you know in response to that, um, you know I think that's time would tell. I mean I think with anything with research and scholarship, you you uh, just as I've stood on the ideas of others, you know there's been people you know who I've looked at that said yeah I think I see that and I like that here. Um, uh, hopefully people will come afterwards and, and look at my work and, and analyze it and it'll either it will stand and bear fruit or it will you know be a good idea and put back on a shelf. And, and we we go from there until we all get to glory. And God tells us, um, you guys are all idiots. Here's exactly what I was trying to, to say. At that. We'll see. There you go. 
Well, let's get deeper into the letter. Um, can you give us a background history of the city of Philippi, something sure. about its culture, its makeup, so et the, cetera? Uh, the city of Philippi is, um, I think has a fascinating history, uh, named for, uh, you know, Philip of Macedon, right, who we know as the, you know, father of uh, Alexander the Great. Um, and so already kind of has a, a unique pr- place right there. Um one of the, the factors we see when we read Philippians is we see a lot of citizenship language. And I don't think that's necessarily accidental because one of the great battles of Roman history was fought right there at Philippi. So you, if you know your Shakespeare, if nothing else, you remember Julius Caesar was killed uh, and uh, you know, Caesar was killed. And, and then you had sort of this, you know, Mark Antony and, and uh, who later and, and later become Octavia Caesar Augustus, you know, going up against Brutus and Cassius. Well, the deciding battle of those two groups was fought at Philippi. And uh, Philippi, uh, you know, by and large took the side of the winning um, generals, like they sided with Antony. Um, and so that ended up paying huge dividends for Philippi. It received citizenship. Uh, and uh, a lot of military presence sort of came in. And, and, and so we, we see that. And even in Acts, when Paul is, uh, you know, and Luke is recounting Paul's visit uh, to, um, to Philippi in Acts, there's, there's talk about citizenship and, and identity. Uh, so we see a heavy presence there. We also see less presence, of uh, it seems, of a Jewish population. Um, you know, Paul's practice is when he would go into a city, would begin in the synagogue. And, um, and you, to have a synagogue, you needed. Uh, you know, a, a quorum of, of Jewish men to be able to have a synagogue that was pretty small, like 10. Um, but Paul doesn't find that at Philippi. Um, so there's sort of a place of prayer that's, uh, that um, is located sort of outside by the water um, and where Lydia, uh, he meets with Lydia and, and sort of begins the, the, the start of the church at Philippi there. So it doesn't seem like there's a heavy Jewish presence. Now, again, we're not as confident in that, but at least looking at the history of Acts. And so it's a very... Um, uh, unique place just in terms of, of, of its own history um, and, and, and its composition uh, that sort of makes up the citizenship, which I think feeds into why Paul talks about citizenship language quite a lot um, in, in Philippians. And uh, we're going to get into a lot more details later about what's going on in the church, but what can you offer now up front as a, a background to the state of the church at Philippi? Yeah, so one of the... Um, uh, the church seems to be, I guess if I would use sort of modern language, a healthy church. Um, you know, so often in Paul's letters, there's something that is a crisis that is needing to be uh, corrected or, or resolved in, in, a, in a pretty strong manner. And it seems like the church at Philippi um, isn't suffering from that. Uh, I mean, there's some uh, disunity, tension there, but not in a real heavy way. It doesn't this is why I push back against people who argue that there is disunity at Philippi. I'm like, read first Corinthians, read first Corinthians. That's what Paul sounds like when he's writing to a church that's just in schisms and factions. Um, and he's not, he's not subtle about it. Um, you don't have that kind of tone in, in Philippians. And this was a church that was supporting Paul, you know, uh, with their finances. Um, it, their, Paul references, um, leadership right off the bat in his introduction to the letter of Philippians, um, which is unusual. He usually just cites to all the saints or to all the believers of a church here. He actually signals out 
um, even uh, leadership offices. So it seems to be a, a, a church that received the gospel um, and was growing and, and was healthy and was um, uh, uh, moving forward in their, in, in their work. You know, as I, I kind of want to always say, if I summarize Galatians, 1 Corinthians and Philippians, it's Galatians is sort of come back. You know, 1 Corinthians is come further and uh, Philippians is keep going. You know, because that's what it seems to, um, uh, I, I see that church is a really healthy uh, church that um, loved Paul and had good relationships with him. All righty. And uh, what can you say about the integrity of the letter? And could you define that term when it's used in this context? Sure. So when you hear uh, people talk about the integrity of the letter, um, uh, what they're sort of talking about is, was it one letter, one single composition? Or was it uh, multiple compositions, multiple letters that at some point in history were sort of put together and, and handed down as one letter? So with, integrity doesn't mean an authorship question or an authorship challenge per se. It's not talking about uh, theological you know, considerations. It's really talking about was this one letter um, or not, a single composition. And uh, up until probably relatively recently, the, the last couple hundred years, hundred or so years, had really challenged the idea that, that Philippians was a single letter. Um, and partly because there's some things that seem to happen in Philippians that indicate it might, might be um, different letters. So, for example, uh, the Paul waits until the very end of the letter to really talk about the gift in a very direct way. Um, at least this is what a lot of scholars think. Um, and they think, okay, so maybe... Epaphroditus arrives with the letter, Paul quickly sends out a thank you for the support, and then follows up later with a, an additional letter as a way of trying to explain why would Paul wait until the very end to acknowledge uh, the gift and support that um, he had received. I think that's sort of odd. Um, another point that gets made is right in the middle of the letter, you know, Paul says, finally, um, right? It's the Greek phrase, finally. And that's typically something that, that one sees when you're concluding. And then it actually right after that, Paul talks a little bit about travel plans, which is something he typically does at the end of a letter. So the idea is like, well, maybe he's ending there uh, as well. And so there, you know, there are different theories that were, were produced. Was there, um, was Philippians two letters? Was it three letters? And different theories that sort of come out that the idea that at some point a scribe, maybe at Philippi, took all of these letters, put them together as one, and then that's what got handed down uh, through, through history. Um, now, the uh, challenge to that, so the uh, for the largest history of the church, the integrity of the letter wasn't um, even uh, a matter of debate. And then uh, in the last sort of 150 years or so, it became a matter of debate. In the uh, last you know, 60, 70 years, that's picked up a little more steam. And in the last 30 years, actually, the integrity of the letter has become much more assumed because of actually rhetorical criticism. So what a couple of uh, scholars started to do was to look at ancient rhetoric, ancient speeches, and how they would flow and how they would be, um, you know, put together. And using that as a lens, then examining Philippians, it was like, okay, wait a minute. Actually, the way Philippians operates, mm. it operates in a way very consistent with ancient speeches. And uh, 
that that actually then began to say, okay, well, maybe this letter makes sense as a single composition. Like, in other words, it becomes harder to argue that there would have been multiple letters if it makes sense already as a standalone single composition. And then there are other things like we don't have a textual history of different letters and different fragments. Like even, so if it did become one single letter, it had to happen early. But it's really been a rhetorical criticism that has begun to move that argument back towards uh, the letter as one letter. And that's important. And the reason that's important for us is this. When you're interpreting a letter, so you're reading chapter four, for example, how much of chapters one through three inform how you understand chapter four? Well, if it's a single composition, then everything in chapters one through three informs how you understand chapter four. But if chapter four was a standalone letter that was sent early, at the end of four was sent early and first, then very little of chapters one through you know three will actually inform how you understand chapter four, at least as in terms of a direct argument. So that's where the integrity um, does sort of matter in our interpretation of the letter. All right. So more on the letter, the, the provenance of the letter and the, uh, the dating of Philippians. And if you could define provenance for us in this case. Sure. So oh, and, the, along uh, with that, sorry to interrupt, is no, that uh, also Paul's situation in prison. If you could speak more about that, what he was going sure. through. So what, uh, one of the things we know uh, uh, is Paul's in prison when he's writing. So he's writing to the church at Philippi and he's in prison. He, he references that right off the bat early in his letter about being chains, um, there, awaiting a trial, you know, that that's coming up. So we know he's writing from prison. Um, we don't know exactly why he was arrested. Um, the reason we don't like, so it could have been he's arrested for, you know, proclaiming uh, a ruler other than Caesar. Right, which is we know what will develop later on, sort of a rejection of the imperial cult, rejection of the emperor's God, um, it will develop. But that that movement actually takes place just a few decades later. I mean, this is what we have in, in Revelation. Um, uh, you know, that that type of persecution begins. A lot of times, some of the arrests and persecution could just happen under disturbance of the peace. You know, where someone is arrested, uh, not because they're necessarily her- a, a anti-emperor, but because they've been accused of disturbing the peace. So we don't know exactly the charge that was in, in play, but we know he's in prison. Um, the question is, where is he in prison? And the where helps define a little bit the when. Um, so the long-standing traditional argument has been that Paul is in prison in Rome when he's writing this, uh, which we know Paul was imprisoned in Rome. That makes good sense. Um, In Philippians, Paul talks about the household of Caesar. He talks about a praetorium guard. So he makes those references, all which would then lead to a a reasonable argument that Paul is writing from his imprisonment in Rome, which if that's the case, then we know Paul was in prison in the early 60s. So that puts uh, it's one that makes it one of his later epistles, um, and a lot of people see that you know see a very you know reflective, gentle, calm Paul you know writing uh, during that time period. The problem with it, with a Roman uh, provenance, so provenance is sort of where the letter is coming from, uh, is the distance between Philippi and Rome. 
So the distance by land is about 700 miles. By sea, it would be like 900 miles for uh, someone to travel. And the reason that's an issue is Philippians has a lot of traveling going on. Um, you've got uh, Epaphroditus, you know, coming to Paul. Um, along the way, uh, he gets sick. News gets back to the people that Epaphroditus is sick. Paul knows that the people think, you know, that know that Epaphroditus is sick. Paul's going to send Epaphroditus back. He's going to send Timothy. He expects Timothy to get back to him, and he mm. expects uh, himself to get back to the Philippians shortly. In other words, that's a lot of travel. And a um, and Paul seems to think this is all going to happen relatively quickly. Some of this traveling, um, you know, that he expects to send Timothy uh, soon and hear back soon, you know, and visit them soon. So that's why Rome becomes a, a, a challenge. So one of the other uh, arguments, or the, or the main arguments, and this is one I have found uh, more convincing because of this um, distance, is Ephesus. Um, now. Uh, what do we know about Ephesus? We know it's large. It's one of the largest cities uh, in the um, Greco-Roman world. It would have had a Praetorian guard. It would have had a group that would have been in a household of Caesar, like that didn't only exist in, in Rome. So it would have had all of those trappings. Um, it's very close to Philippi, about 100 miles. So all those travels can make some sense, um, uh, you know, then, uh, given it, its proximity. Uh, we know that, um, you know, Paul uh, sends uh, people to Macedonia while he's in Ephesus. Like we get that in Acts where he sends people to Macedonia, like Timothy and others. So that that makes sense. What's the challenge to Ephesus then? Like, why hasn't that been won the day? Like, why isn't everybody from church tradition been Ephesus? Um, we have no statement in Acts that Paul was imprisoned in Ephesus. Um now, we have to be careful what we expect Luke to do in Acts. Luke isn't about writing everything that happened to Paul or everything that happened to apostles. He has a very specific purpose for writing Acts. Um, so he's not going to cover, I, I don't think it's reasonable for us to assume he covers every single imprisonment. We do know Paul suffered in Ephesus, and he talks about, you know, uh, uh, dogs that he would contend with and, and, you know, the, the, um, beatings and things like that, that were part of his, um, ministry. And, uh, he references that, which we don't have direct records of. So what, what many have, have argued and, and I've found convincing is it's reasonable to assume Paul was in prison in Ephesus. Um, and so if it's reasonable to assume Paul was in prison in Ephesus, then Ephesus as a providence makes sense. And here's how it affects dating. If it's when he's in Ephesus, then he's writing it in the 50s, which means um, he's writing it about the same time he's writing Galatians and his Corinthian correspondence. And the arguments and the, the issues he's taking on Philippians fit a lot more cleanly with what he talks about in Galatians and 1 Corinthians than what he does with some of his later epistles, which one might have assumed would have been a, a similarity if he was writing from Rome. And there are other options, Caesarea, et cetera, but those are really the two um, major options is the traditional option of Rome, um, which I think most scholars still hold, um, uh, Ephesus, which a large minority of scholars uh, hold, um, 60s versus 50s, but still, still in prison um, from both of them. Interesting. 
And uh, so it's very important for you to uh, see the gospel, Paul's gospel and the gospel mission. And so that's throughout the letter. Uh, what is significant about that, especially as Paul's gospel is distinguished between other gospels? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, and it's interesting. It's probably something that I came to appreciate as in, in you know further into my studies was that Paul, the pastoral Paul, he does spend time with his churches, um, you know, helping encourage them not to fall back into paganism, not to fall back into um, you know th- those sinful ways. But he spends the vast majority of time um, making sure that they don't have a faulty understanding of who Jesus is, that his pastoral heart wasn't uh, governed by a concern that they would sort of abandon Christ and, and the gospel for back to paganism, but rather that they would have a faulty understanding, a false understanding of who Jesus is, a false understanding of his gospel. And and you know, and, and that and that for Paul, you know, that you know, why he was there, they're called to be the apostle to the Gentiles and proclaim the gospel, you know, and so like to reject him didn't and to reject his mission would align with rejecting the uh, the true gospel. Um, and and I think you know that was very informative for me, um, even in my own sort of uh, work in uh, you know work in the church and in my own life about the importance of understanding. Um, who Jesus is versus a, a, a false understanding of who Jesus is. And, and I think that's what we see in, in, um, uh, in Philippians. When, uh, and if you think through, in the ancient world, the, the, the idea was if you were right with God, if you were right with the gods, you were blessed. If you were out of step with the gods' favor or out of step with God, you were cursed. That's how that was the relationship, right? The gods like you, things were good. If they didn't, things were bad. So here you have Paul in prison. And so for the Philippians, it's very natural for them to think, mm, right? have we backed the wrong gospel? Right? Has he been cursed? Is this the wrong? Because he's in prison and he's not supposed to be in prison because he's supposed to be with God. For Paul to then to write and say, no, you need to understand who Jesus is. You need to understand that I'm not here um, you know, because of the gospel in the sense that uh, I'm somehow out of step. I'm here because this is exactly where God wants me. This is the exact expression of the gospel mission in, in its right, um, this, this persevering through suffering, you know, cross to the resurrection. And, and so I think that is, is, is part of what is this, this project of Paul encouraging them to understand his imprisonment within the right understanding of who Jesus is in the gospel. All righty. Well, that ties into the one the other themes you addressed, which is perseverance, which ties in with joy. Uh, what what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like reading Philippians. You know, I mean, it's uh, I would joke with my class. It's happy Paul, right? I mean, it's because uh, um, uh, the 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 idea of joy and and rejoice uh, is all the way through. And and what and what you start to see in that is that what Paul rejoices in is in their partnership. He's always saying, you know, uh, I will rejoice in you. You rejoice in me. We rejoice in this. I mean, there's always this uh, fellowship, this partnership of rejoicing that's happening. And, and what they're rejoicing in is in the, in what God is doing 
um, his great will, great plan unfolding in the um, in the gospel of Jesus, and and then that that rejoicing runs in partnership, you know, uh, in in complementary to perseverance. So it doesn't; they're not against each other. We it's very easy from a worldly standpoint to equate perseverance with something you do when it's hard and you got to get through it. You don't enjoy it, you know. But what Paul is saying perseverance and joy go together because our perseverance of, of maintaining, you know, through suffering and whether it's imprisonment, whether it's suffering the rejection of people who should be with you, um, you know, whether it's uh, in, in enduring the, the hardships that come with proclaiming Christ, that's actually also a moment of joy. And so you have that great statement in, in Philippians, that statement that is sometimes hard for us to swallow, you know, which when he, when he says to them at the end of chapter one, it has not only been given to you to believe, but also to suffer. And so what Paul's doing there is, is the giving language, that's gifting language. It's it's not only been gifted to you believe, like which we're very good with faith being a gift, but he said, but also to suffer. And then he says, and he explains why, because that's a sign. It's a sign of their destruction, meaning those that stand against you, but of your salvation. And this is from God. And so this perseverance um, is an occasion for joy because it also is proclaiming, yeah, you're with God and you're doing exactly what God wants you to be doing. And so we rejoice uh, in that. So they work, they work together. And you see that through Philippians you know, all the way through. And what about the Philippians gift? Um, if you could offer us some background information on what sort of financial sharing might have taken place within Judaism as well as uh, pagan culture at the time, and then how this um, how this was significant for Paul and the Philippians. Sure, good. So one of the things is we is is um, uh, is what the Philippians gave to him was a financial support. Um, in fact, when you look at the end with chapter four, um, you know, when he is discussing the gift, um, it, 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 he, he talks about it, you know, about matters of giving and receiving. And that's that's language or talking about accounting and, and financing. And, and he says, you know, that you know, he's saying you don't need to send any more. Um, the support language is certainly a, a tangible supply, a tangible support. And when you were in prison in the ancient world, it's very different. The, there wasn't um, the state didn't supply you with, you know, three hots and a cot, right? The state didn't give you your meals and your blankets and your clothing. You were responsible for your own support when you were in prison. Um, you know, the, the, the state didn't care if you died in prison. That, 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 that wasn't a, a welfare system of their concern at all. Um, so if you were in prison, you relied on the support of, of others, um, for your own um, sustenance, you know, from your own continuance. What's interesting, and, and probably I think the, the, when you turn the Greco-Roman world, that is uh, the delicate line that Paul is trying to walk through, is relationships were very much defined in terms of honor and shame. They were very much defined in terms of patron and client. And it worked this way. So, like, Dennis, if you had something that I needed um, and uh, I couldn't get it for myself, uh, so I needed it from you, I would then go ask for it from you. At that moment, you have gained an honor and I have taken a position of shame because you have something that I don't have. And then you become my patron 
and I've become your client. So you would then give to me whatever I was needing, but I in return would then brag about you, would proclaim how great you are, would honor you. I would be underneath you uh, in that relationship. Um, and uh, because you had a need, uh, I had a need and you could fill it. And so I then I, I meet your wants by proclaiming your honor. That's how things would work in the ancient world. And so what Paul has to walk very carefully through is to make sure that isn't what occurs with the Philippians. So when he is writing at the end and says, not that I was in, you, you were right to send to me, but not because I was in need. I have known to be content in, in all circumstances. And he says, and God will later on, he says, you know, God will repay you. He is helping safeguard that what they have done in giving him supplies has not resulted in a patron client relationship where Paul becomes the client of the Philippian church, you know, where he becomes sort of under their employ, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and so that, that, that's, I think, more than anything, I think it's very helpful for us to stand, understand what is occurring there. Which is why, for example, Paul doesn't do the same thing with the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth, he's like, I had a right to earn from what I was doing, but I, I have my own business. I took care of myself. And the reason he's doing that is because he can't trust the church of Corinth to understand that relationship correctly. Hmm. He, he knows that the Corinthians, which are so enamored by patron client, are so enamored by honor shame, the Corinthians are acting like Corinthians. That's their main problem, is they're still acting like the world. That they will then be, they will turn and say, you're our speaker. You're our apostle in terms of a patron client uh, ownership language because of what would have happened there. So he doesn't take money from the Corinthians, but he does from the Philippians, which speaks to how healthy they are, that he can trust them with that. Well, at the same time, he's wanting to continue to protect them from reading those finances, that support within a patron-client relationship, which would have been the dominant way of understanding the exchange of money and services and support in, a, in, the, in the Greco-Roman world. So it's interesting how he um, cares for them, even in his hesitant thank you, as it's sometimes been called uh, at the end of chapter four. Wow, that's really significant. That's, that's something to think about more. So you had mentioned the rhetorical structure before. So let's get into that into more detail. Um, what are the different parts of the letter and what are the, the Latin terms? And if you could define each of those and then we'll explore each section in more detail. Excellent. So um, uh, the uh, Paul's letters are, in terms of ancient letters, are really long. Ancient letters were not that long. They were usually very brief. Paul's letters, even Philippians, in only four chapters, is, is a long letter, let alone when you get into 1 Corinthians, Romans, etc. In terms of length, they're actually more similar to speeches. And we actually have a lot of information about um, how ancient speeches were organized. You know, when I was in school, you learned the five-paragraph theme, right? There were organizational structures you learn, you know, the uh, thesis, three arguments, conclusion, right? That kind of stuff. Well, that was that, that existed in the ancient world as well, um, that there was a way of organizing an argument. And one of the things that when in looking at Paul's letters for some of his letters, it's been helpful to actually use that rhetorical criticism, that way of organizing to understand um, 
what the, the letter and how different parts are moving. And so how the different parts would work is the very beginning would be uh, an exordium. And what an exordium did, it, 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 it went to accomplish two things. One was create a favorable hearing so that the exordium is usually where you would receive, uh, you would hear both the credentials of the speaker and also something that would make the audience want to hear. We do this all the time. Let, let me introduce to you so-and-so. He, I mean, you introduced me. You did a little bit of that. Like you gave uh, where I work and, and what I've written. Like that was a little bit of an idea of hoping to engender um, uh, a positive audience and a, 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 a credibility. That's what the exhorting would do. And it would begin to just introduce a theme. Um, after the exordium, so the exordium is important because it starts to tickle what the main idea is going to be about. Um, after the exordium, um, you would, not always, but if you had one, you would sometimes have an event uh, that would be described or presented. That event would be called a narratio. And the speaker would choose an event that they felt helped best present the idea they want to talk about. So they would capture an event. It would either be something that they're wanting to introduce that the audience has no idea about that event, or it could be an event that they're wanting them to see from a very specific perspective. So that's why you usually see an exordium, then some sort of event, uh, the narratio, and then you, following the narratio, you get the main thesis of the argument, the main proposition, or the Latin would be the propositio. You get the thesis. And that so that helps us in interpretation be like, all right, I see this exordium. Now I see an event. I know what comes next is going to be the thesis. Um, and, and then uh, after the thesis, you have all the proofs to the thesis, which are called the probatio. Now, when we think of proofs, we can think of that typically in uh, how you prove an argument is true. Like, you know, you make a, um, I can tell you that it was you know, Colonel Mustard with the candlestick because uh, Colonel Mustard was, you know, did not have the wrench. Uh, and I know he didn't, you know, you could do the clue argument. We tend to think of proofs that way. And, and certainly in ancient rhetoric, there would be that um, occasion. But proofs also could be understood differently. Um, so, for example, proofs might be presenting new ways of, of, of um, unfolding or unpacking the thesis. So taking the thesis and say, now look at it this way. So it could be restatements of the thesis. Or it could be examples of people or examples of events that show the argument or help explain it. So proofs don't necessarily have to be the idea or prove it. It can also be kind of a way of demonstrating it. Um, uh, and that would be the probatio. Then following that, you would usually have what's called the paratio, uh, which is a, a, towards the end, it'd be a, a high emotion um, summary, uh, you know, where, and there's usually a lot of high rhetoric, um, uh, emotive words, um, flowery sometimes. Um, and, and that was usually the idea had it would, it would create an emotional end um, you know, to, uh, to the argument, which helps solidify its um, uh, conviction. Uh, and then sometimes after that, you could have final elements that, that um, uh, you know, a, a denouement, right? You know, little, uh, little things at the end that um, are connected to it, but have a little bit of variety in what the speaker or the, uh, or the writer wanted to do. So that's kind of a general structure that we know ancient rhetoric would follow. And when we look at Philippians, we actually see that structure. Now, it doesn't mean Paul follows that structure in every one of his epistles, but in Philippians, it does seem he follows that path. 
that we see in ancient speech, because in, and that helps us understand what he's uh, what he's doing in the epistle. Okay, great. So let's take a look at the exordium, which starts with um, chapter one, verse one, from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, and then it continues on. Um, what is important for us to know about that whole section? Good, good. So, like one. Um, Right off the bat in that section, uh, what, what should probably stands out is the, um, the emphasis Paul puts on their fellowship, their mutuality, their partnership. Um, you know, he talks about how they've been, you know, um, you know, fellowships in his imprisonment and how he, you know, he yearns for them and he loves them and, uh, and it's right for uh, him to feel that way. And, and, then, and then he talks about how they you know, love him. Uh, and, um, and so you, you, he's signaling right off the bat that this letter one is going to be a positive one. Right. It, it doesn't, it doesn't come out with you foolish Galatians, right. You know, it doesn't, you know, come out strong. It doesn't even come out strong with an apostolic defense. Um, and a lot of Paul, Paul starts his letters by affirming his apostleship. Um, he doesn't do that, you know, here. In fact, he uses servant language, slave language, which also signals there's going to, the humility is going to be a strong part. So in that opening of the exordium, one of the things as a, a reader of Philippians we're struck with immediately is the partnership and the fellowship is a loving one. Um, uh, it's, it's centered on, on the gospel. Paul is praying for them um, and he is celebrating their, you know, um, uh, continued fidelity to him. Uh, and, and that this is going to be a, a positive letter, something that, you know, stress that also with a hint of humility, you have chains, you have servant and you have imprisonment language. So we know that he's hinting at that humility is going to be a, a part of this part of this letter. All right. Then the narratio starts with uh, verse 12 in chapter one. Uh, he writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. So imprisonment, right? So right off the bat, he, he, he introduces an event, which in rhetorical criticism, we would expect. And what's the event? His imprisonment. And he's uh, uh, writing his imprisonment to help them have the right perspective of it. It doesn't seem like they were unaware of it. He, so when he starts out, I want you to understand what's really happening here. Like God is at work. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And he cites two things. One, he cites, first of all, um, that the, his knowledge of why he's in imprisonment for Christ has gone so far that even like places you never thought would hear about Jesus, the, the, the Roman guard, right? The, you know, the, the, they're hearing about Jesus because of my imprisonment. And, but then he also talks about another positive effect is that there are people, believers, who are even more bold, who stand without fear to proclaim the gospel more boldly because of his imprisonment. So there are people um, at Rome or Ephesus, depending on where you think he is, that are believers that are now even encouraged all the more. Mm -hmm. And that presents for the Philippians, hey, here's what an authentic response to my imprisonment is. It's boldness to understand that this is exactly what uh, Paul's supposed to be. This is exactly where. So it, right off the bat, he says, hey, this is how I want you to see this, that God's at work. 
that the mission you're backing is still going exactly where it's supposed to be. And there are people emboldened by it. What's also interesting in his discussion of the imprisonment is because he then talks about there are those around him who are trying to take advantage of this situation, who are trying to increase his hardship. He doesn't actually spend hardly any time talking about his jailers. He doesn't talk about the suffering he's experiencing physically. He doesn't talk about if he's been beaten or not. He doesn't talk about the, the, the Roman jailers hardly at all. What's causing him stress are the people who present as if they should be, you know, affirming the gospel and following Christ, actually seeking to take advantage of the situation, you know, for their own benefit. And, and so Paul, earlier on the Neradio, which he's going to, you know, expand out later in the epistle, is also saying, here is what a faulty response looks like. The positive response, proclaim more boldly, you know, uh, uh, in fellowship with me. The faulty response is to actually seek your own advantage, you know, to uh, see opportunities to lift yourself up. Um, and and um, that, of course, is going to anticipate you know, the Christ hymn, when we, when we get to that, you know, the, the, the paradigm of surrendering yourself and not seeking your own advantage, you know, in, in, in service to God. So he's already kind of presenting that. Now, one of the big challenges in that section, and no one knows exactly what to do with it, um, is when he says, you know, uh, for good or ill doesn't matter as long as Christ is proclaimed, um, which sounds really good on its surface, except for the fact that nowhere else does Paul ever say something at all like that. Nowhere else does Paul say, I don't care about your motivation as long as your words are right. Paul's always about the heart, you know, always about, in fact, when he talks about envy and jealousy and, and, and people seeking their own advantage in other letters, he says they have no place in the kingdom. So to all of a sudden have a Paul saying, yeah, it doesn't matter as long as you get the words right. It's a challenge. It's a challenge mm-hmm. now. So, I mean, I think there's a couple ways to sort of navigate through that. Um, I, admittedly, I think they're choppy. If this wasn't, if these were clean, there wouldn't be a problem. Um, uh, you know, one of the ways to navigate through it is punctuation. We know that in the, is that um, uh, the punctuation is a later addition to the, interpret- the interpretation of the letters. So it's possible that we've punctuated it wrong. I sometimes think that's an easy out, but it's possible, you know, where Paul is actually saying, um, you know, for good or ill, does it matter? Period. Yes, it matters in every way because, you know, and then he's sort of the assumption that he's affirming that yeah, it is a big deal. Or maybe the good or for ill isn't talking about their motivations, but actually talking about you know, whether people are for me or against me, it doesn't matter. Christ is proclaimed that the good and the ill is actually his own circumstances. And again, both of those are challenging in their own, own respects. But so is the idea that Paul doesn't care what your motivation or your heart is, as long as you proclaim who Jesus is. Um, I mean, that that goes against what he's going to say about the Christ him, you know, and who Christ is. You right, know, right. Uh, in the standpoint. But the, needless to say, he's framing the imprisonment as I'm suffering and I'm praising the Lord because I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And people who see this correctly are even more boldly to proclaim who Christ is. Okay. And so we move to um, the prophecy in chapter one, verse 27. He writes, 
Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm. Good. Yeah. And, and I would even expand that all the way to 127 to verse 30. Like that, that the propositio, it, that's the thesis. And that's one sentence in Greek. A lot of times in our English translations, we'll take a really long sentence and we'll make it into multiple sentences because we love people, <laughs> you know, and these really long sentences get challenging. So we're right to do that. I love that. That's the thesis. That is the dominant imperative. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And, and I won't spend too long on this, but that word conduct, um, the Greek word behind it is polytuesta. Um, polytuesta, polis. It's where we get city, metropolis, Indianapolis, right? Polis. It's that, that word that we translate as conduct, um, Paul doesn't use the imperative form anyplace else. It's the only place in all of his letters he uses it. And it's, a, it's, it's more than just conduct. It has the idea of conduct yourself as a citizen would. So it has the idea of your manner should reflect the body of which you belong to. So it's more than just a statement of live a right life, if you will. It, uh, I mean, he, he loves ethics, ethical statements like live and walk and, 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 and he uses those throughout. But here it's more, it's as a citizen of heaven, when we get, and he talks about citizenship language later, right? as a citizen of the gospel, this is what uh, you look like. This is, this is, is what you do. I, I have three boys and raising them up, you know, they'd be a Jennings is kind, like a Jennings, you know, is respectful to uh, it, their elders. Like there's, there's an idea because you belong to the Jennings clan, there are certain things that go along with being that. It's that idea, it's the citizenship, this polytuesta that, that is that driving imperative. All righty. And then next we have the probatio section that starts in uh, chapter two, verse one, and um, goes all the way up to chapter four, verse three. Uh, Paul writes, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the spirit. That's the way he starts it off. And so we got a big section here. How would you sum that up and see what's significant? Good. So the, that that entire next section is the is the probatio, which is as you call our proofs, right? This is then Paul is presenting evidence in support of his thesis, and and when we think of evidence support of it, uh, he does it in a couple of different ways. One is he presents complementary imperatives. Um, uh, one thing I've always said is to know Philippians is to know its imperatives that all the different imperatives, which he starts out with make my joy complete, like that's the first one. Um, and that's talking about, when he talks about make my joy complete, he's talking about, you know, that this relationship, this fellowship, this commitment to the gospel. So it's not a like a narcissistic, make me happier. It's like, man, I want to keep praising the Lord. So keep doing this so I can keep praising the Lord. Um, uh, then you've got uh, uh, imperatives uh, as you've always obeyed, you know, put your salvation into operation, work out your salvation. Uh, you have um, about the Christ hymn, uh, you know, about imitating Christ. You have these series of imperatives that happen, um, you know, all the way through. So that's that's part of the proof. So different ways of saying, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he uses people as proofs. 
Um, so the, he uses Jesus as a proof. So the Christ hymn is a proof, uh, is the, the exemplar of what it looks like to conduct yourself in a manner consistent with the gospel, which is that, you know, emptying for God's will, you know, for others, not seeking your own advantage. He uses um, Timothy as a proof. You know, Timothy has a deep love for the Philippians and uh, as it will serve them. Aphroditus is one of his greatest proofs. He says, look at Aphroditus. And, and there's a, even almost like a Christ uh, hymn overlay. Aphroditus, who almost to the point of death, is Paul's language, um, served the gospel mission, you know, to bring this gift. And then he sends Aphroditus back and says, you know, imitate people like him. You know, look at him and others like him. You know, they're serving sacrificially, not thinking of their own um, well-being. And then he presents himself as a proof. And, 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 and you know, he, he says something that seems like we would never want to say, which is imitate me as I imitate Christ. It seems who would want to say that? Um, well, Paul, because Paul's pouring himself out fully for them. You know, he, he says, you know, I don't know, like, I'd rather be with Christ than to be here, but being here is good for your faith. So I know I'm going to remain. He, he, uh, he, he says, if I have to be poured out as the libation on the, the sacrifice of your faith, I will rejoice. Meaning if I have to sacrifice everything for you, um, uh, I will, I, I will rejoice. I mean, that's what, you know, Paul presents, you know, and that's why he even talks about his own story. I love his own story because his own story is like, I had all of this. I was not some sap walking aimlessly in need of certainty. And I found some sort of certainty in the faith. I had a great name. I had a great lineage. I had a great family line. I had all this respect. I had everything that should give me confidence. And I consider it all to be rubbish, to be done in light of the cross and the resurrection. I want to know the joy of his resurrection. I surrendered all of that for what I know is the uh, the, the beauty of the gospel. And so he, he presents as part of his proofs, all of these people, uh, as well, um, which is, um, which I think is fantastic, you know, which is just cool how he presents that. So that's what you see in that larger section, different ways of presenting the imperative and, and examples of also what, um, people living out that imperative look like. So you made it clear where you see the Christ hymn, the kenosis, the self-emptying um, where it fits in with the overall thrust of the letter. But of course, people take it a lot further and they're looking for all sorts of deep Christological um, evidence about this way of thinking or that. Um, how far can we go with that in, in see, seeking out deeper truths? Or is that just misguided? It's a great question. I mean, the, I mean, the Christ hymn is the it's the part of Philippians, right? I mean, that is the, it's such a beautiful, uh, majestic piece. It's like the, um, uh, you know, the old book animal form, right? All, all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. Like there's sometimes you get the scripture, all passages are created equal, but some are more equal than others, right? There's the Christ hymn, like it's one of those pieces. Um, and, and the beauty of it is because we get this, um, uh, you know, picture of, of, of almost inside the Trinity, at least within the Father, Son, 
um, relationship and, 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 and what Jesus is doing and the emptying Jesus in obedience to God. And, and then, you know, even at the very end, it's, it's not Jesus claiming his own exaltation it's God exalting him. It's the father giving him, you know, quoting Isaiah, the name that's above every name, the, you know, the name that belongs to God is, is now to be understood, you know, as belonging to the son uh, as well. Um, it's a, a beautiful, powerful picture. And so then, the, the, and, and, and even in the middle of all this, you have wonderful Adam language, right? You know, where, you know, uh, Adam, uh, who was made in the image uh, of God, yet sought his own advantage, tried to grasp it, you know, right? You know, and become like God's with the eating of the, of the fruit, um, you know, and whereas Jesus did not do that. I mean, it's just some beautiful, powerful, you know, um, Old Testament filled uh, language and pictures here. So the question is sort of becomes is like, what are we supposed to do with this? Is this, um, uh, you know, is this canonic hymn, this emptying hymn? Is, is, is this, uh, um, what's this a picture of how far are we to understand what Jesus emptied himself of? Um, you know, how far, what God the Son rather emptied himself of? How far are we to understand uh, what's the view? And, and, I, and, I, and I think that becomes complicated, um, partially because the hymn isn't intended to answer that question. The, the hymn isn't intended to answer how much of the divine prerogatives that God the Son temporar- temporarily lay down, you know, at the incarnation. Um, what the hymn is, 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 is not intended, it's not intended to say, did he empty himself of this or did he empty himself of that? What the hymn is intended to do is to say that he emptied himself. You know, like that, that's, the, that's the arc of the hymn. Now, if there's a, uh, the, the Greek here is fascinating. There are two ways of understanding the beginning of it. One is that um, uh, who, although being in the very nature of God, did not uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be taken for advantage. The idea of, although he is God, didn't take advantage of that. You could also translate it this way, and 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 a lot of good, uh, you know, evangelical scholarships uh, affirms this is is not although being in the very nature God, but because he was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God. In other words, it's not despite being God he doesn't do this. It's because he is mm. who he is, he lays it down, and. Um, and the way the Greek works, the participle, that seems like how can an although, a concessive, and a causal be both possible in the, in the language? And that's probably just the way some of the Greek participles work. Um, and, and, of course, both theologically hold true. But, I, you know, in looking at Philippians as a whole, I think what Paul is doing in Philippians is he's saying to the church, because you are in Christ, you can persevere and you can be humble and you can lay down and you can not seek your own advantage. And, and because I see that running through the epistle is I've become more and more convinced that he's saying it's because Christ is who he is. It's because he's God, the son, he could do what Adam could not do and what anyone else cannot do unless they're in Christ. He could lay down his own advantage for the purpose of submitting obediently to God. Um, and, and so it's interesting just, uh, you know, how, um, even how the whole of the epistle can inform our understanding of the hymn. So that's what I think it's doing. So that's why when I look at the hymn, I, I might look elsewhere, in the, maybe the gospels, for example, of, of you know, where was Jesus limited? Um, where was he not limited? You know, obviously, he, you know, he was limited and he became flesh, 
you know, what, uh, when he was, um, you know, you know, doing his ministry, I might look elsewhere to answer some of those questions, but not to the Christ hymn. To the Christ hymn, what is what God is uh, telling me through Paul is God has sent emptied himself fully, completely, all the way to the cross for uh, the gospel, for the good news that uh, is being accomplished at the cross through Jesus, and that God the Father exalted him. And so then for the believer, what that says to me is, is, is that's the way I go. I'm to be humble and I'm to serve and I'm to be, you know, uh, you know, for God's will and, and, and for the proclamation of the gospel and empty myself completely. And I also know that God promises there is exaltation that awaits. You know, there is heaven, there is glory, there is the kingdom of God that awaits, uh, you know, as well. But it is, it is not me screaming, I've earned it. It is God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, it, it is such a different sort of move, um, which is why it's such a beautiful and powerful piece of Philippians. Excellent. Okay, so possibly it should be translated because rather than although. That's, that's very significant. Yeah. Either one are possible. Either one. All righty. So moving on to the Pararadio, um, starts with chapter four, verse four, um, up to verse nine. And Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So what do we have here? Yeah. So this is that, uh, that's, uh, this is that emotional end, right? This is that, you know, flurry of terms um, that's meant to, you know, anchor in uh, what the argument that's just been presented. And so what I love about this piece is, is you know, one of the probably the most common areas uh, in this things is this command, you know, whatever is noble, whatever is honorable, you know, um, think on these things, you know, that section falls here. Um, Paul hasn't sort of moved aside to a whole different topic. I mean, he's saying, he's, he's taking, taking actually language that was well known within Stoicism. Like this is stuff that was, you know, not just, we, we, we you know, restricted to, you know, Judaism and, and, and uh, early Christianity. Uh, but he's taking those terms and saying, and what, what is good? What is honorable? What, is, you know, what are the things you should be thinking on? It's everything I've just said. Like, that's what you should be, you know, thinking on. Those are the things that um you know our, our focus and so it, it while it certainly has a a natural extrapolation into all the things like philippians isn't the entirety of the message of, of of scripture and so that i would say is right to extrapolate to the other things about you know thinking all of what god has to say and speak but let's not lose sight of when he's talking about these things he's talking about it in the context of you know faithful partnership you know uh you know for the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel so that takes us to the concluding arguments, the denouement that starts with uh, chapter four, verse 10 goes to verse 20. And Paul writes, I have great joy in the Lord because now at last you have again expressed your concern for me. Good. Yeah. So where do we go with this? So now he's ready to talk about the gift. I think he purposely waited to talk about the gift because now he's ready to talk about their, their support that has re-blossomed. And now they're ready to understand it correctly. They're ready to see that their support of the mission might have been even so much more than what they thought it was. You know, that what he's saying, now you're ready to understand that your support, your sacrifice, your giving, your partnership with me is a, a loud witness and testament to who you are, you know, in the kingdom you know, working for God and, and his purposes. And so he's, he doesn't delay the gift because he feels weird talking about money. 
he he's now says, now you're ready to have the right perspective. Now I'm ready for you to understand what has actually happened and why I'm rejoicing like crazy when Epaphroditus showed up with your support, because this is, this is what it's case. Now we have to be very careful here. This kind of argument can be used in very manipulative ways. Like you, it's, it doesn't, go, it doesn't go too far for all of a sudden to see, um, uh, you know, pastors and ministers and, and people say, Hey, your gift to me is going to be the indicator, actually, of if you love God. I mean, this could become used, you know, in some very dangerous ways. Um, and and to, the, to that, which I say, it's like, in any time you're sort of giving, anytime you're supporting and, and, and prayerfully considering who, who you're giving to, what would Paul look like? Like, is this a person who you can say, is this a ministry that you can say they are emptying themselves they are pouring themselves out for the gospel they are um uh indicative of someone who's living that life uh of of conduct in a manner feeding the gospel this ministry is doing it because that's the mark of of what you should be in partnership with or not if it's someone who's seeking advantage over somebody else who is finding themselves in competition and trying to take advantage of something, somebody else's hardship or some mentor's hardship, or they themselves are living a life where they, you clearly are gaining, you know, from it in a way and, 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 and you know, worldly standards. And, and then that's a mark, you know, uh, you know, of it, but that shouldn't release us of the fact that our support, our financial support is one of, of what God is doing is one of the ways God has been moving his, uh, his kingdom forward. You know, there are the those who are sent, and then there are those who fund the the, the cinders, right? And the sin, there's the cinders, the ones who are, are supplying it. God's in both, and that's what I love about Philippians is because Philippians also allows us to see how beautiful are the people supporting the ones going out and doing the ministry. You know, that Paul doesn't draw a distinction between the greater work of going and the lesser work of sending. He says, this is all God's great doing. Let's rejoice together. And I think that's a very beautiful word, um, you know, for, for the church today as well. And uh, you touched on this some already, but what more can you say about the opponents of Paul? What can we know about them? It seems like there's a few hints in there. Yeah, yeah. So there's always a question of who are Paul's rivals? Um, what do they believe? Like in Galatians, we get a much stronger sense of what they're, you know, that there is this, uh, you know, you have to follow uh, Torah stipulations. You know, you, you can believe in Christ, but you also have to adhere to Jewish law in order to be assured your place in the kingdom. We have a pretty good idea of those opponents. Um, we actually might have that same reality potentially happening in Philippians because Paul spends some time in his own biography talking about that. Um, we don't, there are a lot of different arguments, you know, are these people, are, are Paul's opponents here, those who are arguing like some sort of prosperity mission that it can't be because Paul's in prison, that the right understanding of Christ is one that just overflows with material blessing. Um, you know, what is, what is actually occurring here? Paul actually puts them all under one umbrella, which is enemies of the cross. So when Paul talks about opponents, he just refers to them as enemies across. He doesn't even actually get into a lot of specific details other than I think to say those people who are trying to take advantage of my situation and advance themselves. If you look at those people, 
And these aren't pagan Romans coming in. Like these are people who present themselves as if they're part of the you know, Christian uh, identity. Uh, that those who are trying to advance their own agenda, if you look at them through the Christ hymn, you see them as enemies of the cross. Um, you know, and so I do think you get a hint that he's talking about that type of diagnostic, but he, he puts them all under enemies of the cross, which I think allows him to say any group that's against uh, the gospel is an enemy of the cross. And, and then I won't spend too much time, but I really think Paul talks about three different groups of people in his letters, brothers, uh, pagan unbelievers, and false brothers. And it's the false brothers that actually we see the strongest language of, of warning and, and um, uh, concern from Paul. It's the false brothers that are the ones that I think get the in, enmity language um, so much more strongly than even the ones who are of the pagan world, of which we all belong to before we became followers of Christ. Excellent. And what would you say are some of the, the significant debates that are still going on, theological debates um, concerning the letter of Philippians? Good. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think like we've talked a little bit about, you know, the, what's happening with the Christ hymn and how much can be pulled um, out of that. I mean, I think probably one of the, um, you know, one of the debates that still sort of continues in, in Philippians um, uh Maybe, and I don't know if a theological debate would be as much as a stress of emphasis would be, um, is this a unity problem? Um, and, and I think when we look at Philippians, as a lot of scholars do, and a lot of pastors and theologians do, as a unity within the church issue, um, I think we miss some of the strength that Paul is actually talking about, a, a collective unity for the gospel and for the gospel mission, rather than sort of disunity um, you know, within the church. And so I think we might elevate some things that um, into a, a interpretation of how do you form unity in a church instead of what we're supposed to do is look at this language as of how do we as a church be unified in a, in a mission that, that's going that's going out. Because even the conflict on Judea and Syntyche, and there's certainly something happened between those two women. It's clear. Paul waits very long to talk about it and doesn't really give a whole lot of details you know, to it and affirms both women in equal terms. Like if that was something that was splitting the church, you'd think he would have dealt with it in a similar way they did uh, Corinth. So I would think that's probably one of the things I would just encourage people is to don't always read unity language as a problem uh, um, uh, within the church at Philippi, but look at how it actually might have more to do with being unified together towards a, towards the common mission of the gospel. All righty. And so you talked a lot about the, the central purpose of the, the letter, how it's all tied together. But if we were going to develop a theology, mm -hmm. theology of the letter of Philippians, um, would that be any different? Um, I mean, I think, I mean, I think there's certainly they go together. I mean, I think like if we talk about a theology of the letter, so the, you know, if the purpose of the letter is to encourage uh, the, uh, the Philippians to, you know, persevere in their fidelity uh, to the, to the gospel. Um, I would think the theology of the letter might be that, um, you know, God has ordained uh, the movement of, of, of his gospel, you know, through the unity of his people. Um, and, and like, I think that, that might be the, 
um, sort of theology. And, and, and then incorporated under that is what that means. It's, it's a surrendering, you know, to uh, the will and plan of God. It's in partnership and encouragement with one another. It's um, in uh, rejoicing. It is in suffering, uh, you know, together. It, it's sort of recognizing that God is the one at work. And, and I might even take that verse uh, early on that the one who began a great work in you will see it to completion. And in in uh, in my when I read that as a good uh, uh, you know Westerner, I think what it's a singular you. I think what God you know what God is saying is the one who began a good work in you, Mark. The one who began a good work in you, Dennis. God will see to completion. But it's actually a corporate you. It's a plural you. What Paul is actually saying is the one who began a good work in you, Church at Philippi. God will see to completion. That doesn't mean God's not doing amazing, wonderful work in our lives and, and moving through. But the strength of the letter is that the theology of the letter is the one who began the good work, which is his good work in you, church. He is the one who will see it uh, to its completion. All right. And finally, you've already touched on this quite a bit. But what more could you offer us as far as an application for the whole church? And that's in light of the sort of missionary structures we have, church planning, evangelism, um, all that tied together. What would be relevant for us today? Good. I, I think I think probably a couple of things that would be relevant. That's relevant for me as, as, as this letter speaks to me and I think it's relevant to the church. Um, money matters, right? That... Um, uh, uh, money in the sense of not holding it, but money in the sense of giving it, that there is a um, testimonial act that happens in, in, in our giving and our support of our resources. And um, that, that that is a, uh, an, an active reflection. So I think one of the things is that uh, Christians, we are to be um, givers. We are to be supporting. We are to be in partnership with um, you know, with our resources and not just from our discretionary income. Like this is something we do as a church uh, together. So I think, I think that's one of the things that that's a, that's a takeaway. Um, two is making sure we understand the theology of suffering that um, uh, we understand that we you know we don't just suffer because we're Christian and, and, and in the sense of I accept it, that I hate it, that I accept it. What Paul is telling us is it's a gift. It's a gift, you know, and see it to see it that way. So I think as we think through this humbling, this, this unity, this sacrifice and this giving, which also comes then in suffering um, uh, in a response that we just need to continue to see the joy in both of that, um, uh, you know, as part of, of some God's great work. And I love it. I mean, Philippians is a beautiful expression. That's a, I, I, would, I would joke, it's a fundraising letter. Right in a, in a lot of ways, but it's what it looks like when you're doing it together in partnership with the gospel, um, uh, you know, and moving forth, you know, as 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 a church uh, in support. And this is a church that's doing it, right? This isn't just Apophroditus giving a little money here, Yodia giving some support here, Sintichi doing there. It's a church that's in partnership together with a gospel mission that that's going out. Um, and I think that's powerful uh, to to that that corporate effort. Excellent. All righty. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. We're here with Mark A. Jennings, professor of New Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. So 
Thank you so much, Dr. Jennings, for being with us. Thank you. It was a delight. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, peace to everyone. Peace.